0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: McCard carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just
0: next a big poppy. Be like, he's just one of us, man.
1: <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
0: This is Wharton Moneyballs post-game podcast.
2: This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast.
0: We air live on Business Radio SiriusXM XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show.
1: This is uh, Wharton Moneyball, I'm Professor Adi Weiner, and we're here to talk sports and statistics in the studios of the Wharton School of Business here on Locust Walk. And I'm joined with Shane Jensen. Yeah,
2: yeah. who rode a bus in. He rode like a bus. A yeah. Lazy bum, but whatever. You know,
1: it's actually very quiet on the streets maybe because i came in early it's summertime a lot of the school buses carpool stuff isn't going on it's actually nice philadelphia yeah. here
2: yeah no i mean i mean wednesday mornings are kind of where I, I i i most simulate like having a real job by actually having to wake up at a specific time <laughs> and walk, get into work at a specific yes, time Yes, that
1: was my favorite refreshing. my favorite line from uh, john urschel who came in who came in and talked about his experiences being a a a, a lineman and for the baltimore ravens and now a mathematician and he's like what could be better to be a mathematician, a university professor, because there's no, you know, generally there aren't too many early time commitments. But yeah, of course no, and I our mean, show. I get it.
2: that guy is that guy's sort of a. So, you know, his his life experiences have spanned the spectrum of, like, regimented kind of structured oh time God. versus unstructured, unstructured time. It's Actually, fascinating. It's
1: probably wonderful transferable skills. But this is a, a a show which we talk about statistics and sports and all that leisure time, Shane, Where well, I shouldn't say uns- not leisure time, but unstructured time. It gives yes. us opportunities to watch some sports. But this is a pretty low ebb in the calendar. So if you think about it, everything's kind of th- done.
2: It's, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Um, this we is have, it's it's um right. um you know, yeah, I guess we're in the kind of uh, the dog days of summer, right? So we got it, baseball it's, in it's, full we've, we've swing. We've got but baseball not, in full swing. Um and no penny races yet? I no, mean, that well, but it is I think at the point where, you know, I I start getting a little bit more serious about baseball in the sense that like I think by by mid-to-late June Teams that are still good, like you know, if, if if a team is leading the standings in like mid-May, I don't really you know put well, much credence in that, right? That's
1: right. But by mid-June, by it's mid to late June,
2: yeah. you know, I mean, so for example, we can talk about you know the Minnesota Twins and how they're I legit, think, they're right? yeah, they seem to be legit. They are sustaining um, their sort of success from the and and you know, I, I bring them up only because they're somewhat of a surprising team relative to kind of our preseason expectations. Um, you know, I could also <laughs> the Yankees also look like a legit team, though I think yeah, we kind of knew, knew that going in. But let's
1: let's 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 put off a little bit of baseball. We have okay. actually a guest at eight thirty. Rick Peterson will be talking some baseball with with Rick, and Excellent. then we have another guest uh, about basketball. So basketball, of course, just finished up which we do know, uh, yeah. but Ian Levy from uh, from Nylon Calculus, he's going to come on and he's going to talk about uh, everything going on in basketball. Of course, the season should just should be an ended, incredibly interesting offseason. But we have all this free agency, and basketball I think it probably is the big, free agency is the biggest driver of what happens next year, unlike any other sport. So we've got basketball, we've got baseball, but right now, and I think first up on the docket, is a sport that comes around in America, not all that frequently, it's uh, soccer, and yep. right now we're talking about the Women's World Cup, World's Cup, which is a exciting the United States is actually good at this <laughs> unlike <laughs> they are the, very good at the, it the, as uh, it turns men's out. Soccer. maybe even the best in the world so they are the, they are currently the favorites to win the tournament they have to get through France which is the home and the Mm-hmm. And the, the yep. principal contender, um, obviously, it's soccer, a lot of randomness. We saw them play Spain this past week to advance. And listen, I'm no uh, soccer aficionado, but they didn't score from the field at all. They scored on two penalties. Yeah. And this, I don't know what this necessarily means, but let's reflect on this for a moment. Because one of the things that's, that uh, we think about in soccer is... Well, how do you score? What 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 determines yeah. a team's power? I mean, if you think about it, how do we actually measure analytically the value of a team? Um, I know that five thirty eight is a little bit higher on France than the rest of the market is. Um, how do they come up with these judgments? What does one do to measure the value no, and, of a soccer? No, I
2: think it is sort of. Uh, I think soccer is. Kind of, it's fascinating this way. I mean, I think it's it's. Uh, I think it's closest analogy among the kind of big sports in America is probably hockey, in the sense that you have. Um, a low enough scoring kind of – the scoring events are rare enough that even teams that kind of, you know, have maybe, you know, a pretty obvious ability gap between them, you they won't necessarily translate into outcome because, you know, you're talking about kind of you're, – you're, you're essentially – you've got a, a, a good team has a – you know, the best team in the world has a slightly higher – probability of scoring a goal than the second, third, fourth best team in the world. But I mean, for that to actually manifest in the outcome of a game, you know, it's, it's, it's not, randomness. Is, there's so, a lot of randomness so there. So
1: let's just talk about the the fact that the game was won on essentially two penalty kicks. Yeah. Now, it sounds to an un- I mean, that initiated-
2: does sound like a- uh, pretty average soccer game to me it
1: does but let's reflect on what that actually means so in soccer a penalty is earned in some sense because it's an act of desperation by the defense Mm -hmm. so and i think think we can kind of analogize that to football a little bit an open defender there comes a pass what do you do yeah that's right and And i mean it's
2: you know we, we 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 think of uh we think of kind of penalty kick penalty kick goals as somewhat a little bit less earned Cheap, yeah. mm-hmm. um than than you know kind of on the, know, field. on the field goals but they are earned in the sense that yeah i mean you're not going to get a penalty kick unless you're applying some pretty uh, f- uh you know fierce offensive pressure right so i mean it, it is an indication that you know if if they got two penalty kick uh penalty kicks awarded to them that they were obviously yeah they as you sort of said they were pushing uh spain kind of to to desperate Desperate times within within their actual, but kind it does of it does zone. it does
1: make me wonder a little bit about the importance of. I guess earning these penalties yeah. if you think about it think about the sports where penalties are are a complicated interaction between the referee and yeah. the player so in soccer there's this classic of course this sort of flopping that they do yeah. what's the term for it yeah. when they just sort of fall down and grab their legs right. and and then of course we've seen it in we see it in in football to a certain degree not so much that the play, that the players are faking it but it's very hard for the on-field referees to observe it we had the we've seen it's yeah, no, incredible yeah well, no I mean calls. I think
2: both sports are kind of um you know the that are are can can uh, a game can especially a very close uh, game can turn on a penalty basically That's you right. know it it can really have a key determinant in the game
1: well it's, um, and particularly in sports where like nothing else is really happening all the rest of the game so it's a 0, yeah. zero except for the penalties and sometimes this is gigantic so let me get, let me turn that and be more specific on an analytical question there's a a uh, lots of uh, of Articles and, and information, particularly there's a book by Toby Moskowitz, um, Sports Casting, I think, and they make the case that the home field advantage is primarily due to the referee bias. Interesting. And, and, and let's think about the two sports where the, well, there's three sports where the home field is advantage is the highest. And I can, I guess, soccer is one where home yeah. field isn't large. The next highest is. Um, basketball and then football and then actually actually football and basketball are reversed. They both mm-hmm. been they're all around the sixty yeah. percent range and then much lower down is baseball and 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 hockey and if you think about it. Particularly, what we saw with with on the field in soccer, we've seen it in the, yeah. in uh, on the pitch in soccer in the field with on the with football, and we see it in basketball too. With, it's almost like James Harden has made a made a science out of out of earning extra points by yeah. by by kind of falling in a certain way to to earn a uh, free throw. Yeah, players. and I mean basketball.
2: So, I think basketball is a, you know basketball kind of deserves a special kind of distinction from sort of soccer and football. I think in this respect, in, in the sense of basketball, it's it's. I I mean, it can happen, but it's rare that, like, a single call by a referee completely changes the, uh, you know, the winner of the game. Um, But there's so many scoring events in basketball that the accumulation, like, if there is any kind of referee bias, uh, you know, because of, you know, James Harden's, you know, like, amazing trickery or because of, like, just kind of the home crowd, etc., then that can really accumulate over the course of a game. Um, so it, it can it, it, it can still very much influence the outcome of a game it 's just less a single event whereas you know a a blown call or non call in football or obviously a penalty kick awarded in in soccer completely changes the aspect of the game that one event
1: that's right and so I think in the context of uh, the rule of the referee one would argue that if the if the hypothesis is correct that the referees yeah. are a dominating f- factor for home field advantage, we would see it dominate in sports like football and soccer, where those one calls can make gigantic amounts of difference. And then, of course, much smaller in, say, hockey and in baseball. On the other hand, now that we have actually much better data, you do see... Athletes are playing much better at home. They just play better. Every aspect of their play is better, and now that we can measure it, you can sort of see how they do that.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean, I think the be- better data, better analytics will kind of help us. I mean, we kind of you started out this discussion a little bit with this sort of like this specific U.S. Uh, Spain game and the fact that you know we, you know, we don't necessarily know from the. It, a proper attribution of kind of like the scoring, how legitimate the scoring opportunity was on those penalty kicks is something we can all kind of discuss anecdotally now, but analytics will, you know, more advanced right. analytics that are actually tracking the players can give us a little bit more insight In or, you know, the future version of these can give us a little bit more insight into you know, how much of a scoring opportunity like, you know, was that penalty w- when that penalty kick was awarded was that really
1: going to be a goal anyway? Right, but think about how devastating home field- Advantages if your referees are inclined to favor the home team, maybe I mean, and the the claim, of course, is they do this without without you know consciousness bias. It's 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 subconscious. Imagine you know a player is about to score and you and you you interfere in a way that's illegal that should be called a penalty and the and the ref don't call it. The whole game can turn around on these factors. Imagine hitting a home run that's not actually a home run, for example. <laughs> yeah, like, like in a playoff game. Yeah. We've seen that. Um, and But those things are, are actually – so I know you're a very – personally, you're a big fan of introducing technology to, to make the game – take the game out of the Yeah, no, hands. I mean,
2: I think it, it can go – you know, I, I, I am a fan of kind of trying to get the call, quote-unquote, right, and as, as objectively as possible, um, and using technology for that. You know, for example, I mean, you and I go back argue about this. I, I think I would think ro- robot like robot robotic, umpires. Robot umpires, at least for balls and strikes, I think I, I'm I, I would welcome that. Um, I think it can. I, I I think there's a limit, even in my mind, of, of how far that can go. Like I'm really. Intrigued slash fearful of some of the kind of rule changes going into the NFL next season Like the fact that pass interference is now reviewable Reviewable. You're Um, fearful
1: because of the slowdown of the game the abuse uh, but, of the technology? Well, yeah, no, the, it, I, what's I think it'll be more
2: like, you know, depending on kind of how that is actually is implemented, I think it could. It could certainly slow down the pace of the game. But, I mean, football is already kind of a slow right. game anyway. I think I'm just worried that, like, basically every single, you know, it's kind of like I, I kind of holding and in pass interference or something that, you know, if you slow down the tape enough are occurring on essentially every, every single, single play. play. And then this is absurd, and so, yeah. Is this kind of like, you know, you could imagine this pass interference kind of reviewable thing, you know, especially if you can do it via Coach's Challenge. It's almost like a play redo. It's an auto, you know, it's an auto play redo every game. You know, and I mean, I already.
1: The the potential for abuse is um, somewhat massive. Already
2: any time a really amazing play happens uh, involving your team, like you've got a long touchdown or something like that every football fan sitting there and like kind of has to pause their excitement where they wait for whether or not a flag's on the field and now there's <laughs> going to be that extra level of waiting like well wait are they going to call a pass interference <laughs> challenge on
1: it so this is actually going to play itself out this season Yeah, um, we're going to see reviews of all of all plays within two and a half minutes of the end of the half and in overtime um, and obviously the coaches will have a challenge if you're interested in joining our conversation we're here at Warden Moneyball talking statistics and sports you can call us at one 844 four two seven eight six six that's 844-WHARTON, or you could email us at businessradio at SiriusXM, and you can weigh in on whether you think this is reasonable, um, and or we're we going to be in big trouble. I want to actually yeah. return a little bit to the baseball question. Yeah, I, I want to uh, talk a little
2: bit more about the empire, About too.
1: the robot empires. I want to tell you a little bit about a deep dive I did into data. Okay. Um, I, went, I went and grabbed a lot of the war data from fan graphs and I just tried to make some sense out of it, and the major components on a team level for war obviously hitting... And and pitching, but they also have a contribute a very large contribution for fielding, which we can understand. But also catcher framing, Mm -hmm. and so they actually attribute quite a substantial chunk of the wins above replacement to the catcher. And what I what I dived into notice is, well, first of all, if you start looking at the value of catchers, it's an enormous value, essentially by. Manipulating the referee, and I yeah. wanted to, to ask you because while I do understand and and, and value the and think of deeply, and it's important for a team to recognize that a catcher can add value by essentially manipulating the the referee. Yeah. On the other hand, do you think it's fair, and and it's something that we should talk about as the the is the greatest catcher the greatest catcher because. The catcher was able to frame pitches better and and trick umpires into more strikes.
2: I mean, yeah, I, I mean, certainly, I think you know, g- given the rules are the way they are, I think catchers should be given credit for being right. you know,
1: for 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 an ability to kind of manipulate but the umpire. Thing. Would you think of a? I mean, because if you actually I look mean, at the numbers and if you believe I, that I, you I don't, I don't,
2: well, I don't, I don't, I mean, some of those kind of like the catch, catcher framing numbers. Uh, Out there in, you know, right now, don't really kind of pass the smell test to me. I mean, they they just seem like the magnitudes of them are too high. I mean, you know, I I don't, I mean, you would know better the exact three or four wins over the course (laughs) of the season. There's, there's, I find it hard to believe that it's, that they have that much influence. I, I doubt it. But, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think Morse, I think. Both of us believe that there are more subtle, like, catcher framing effects, and I I certainly believe that catchers should be given credit for however much they can manipulate the umpire. I just, you know, if you're asking me, you know, in some kind of ideal future, would that not be an an element of the game? I would say, yeah, Yeah. I mean, remove that as
1: an element of a game. It's kind of weird, you know, it's sort of like... I have a kind of a a more ambivalent feeling. My my feeling is I'm generally against the robot umpires only because I'm a conservative when it comes to baseball, and I understand that they would do a better job than our current umpires. On the other hand, I I do, and I do, of course, I actually recognize that the the, the catcher pitch framing is real. How um, predictable it is in the future, I think, is a much harder question, but it certainly has happened in the past. Um, There are umpires... When
2: you you did a deep dive in the number, I mean, were there certain catchers that kind of consistently were good at this? Sure, but
1: I was doing it on a team level yeah. and um and but it's obviously you typically have one catcher during the season and yeah it was absolutely the case and, and Yankees have, have have generally in the last five, six years always have had a catcher who was good at this. Yeah. Um and, and they and I've I've watched a game where i really felt that, that Romine was, was practically stealing a, a, a save for the Yankees. Yeah. Sanchez is not nearly as good as it as Romine but and as a lot of other, other pitchers I mean catchers. But my kind of view about it is that it's it's a very odd thing to think of a player as having having being a great player by doing something that is essentially manipulating a referee. Yeah. And would we think of a, I mean is Harden in basketball yeah. do we think of him as manipulating a referee? Yeah. Or I mean, you know, him I mean you know you don't
2: have to talk to many hockey ca- fans to convince them that Crosby's not just good at scoring goals but also good at like drawing penalties drawing penalties right you know and and Wayne Gretzky actually before him was also very good at that so no i mean i mean i think every sport kind of has this sort of version of things you know i think that you know that you know not only are they very good players but somehow they they are You know, students of the game enough or whatever that they can kind of, you know, they, they manipulate at the boundary of the rules. That's right. That's right. And I just,
1: I, I, I have a, some, somewhat of a queasy feeling to imagine that we should be deciding all time great status. And when it comes to catchers, because if you believe in the framing status and and feel it's measurable, and it's really only measurable the last 10, 12 years, but on the other hand, there, there are ways to kind of look at, you know, excess strikes. There's, there's attempts to estimate it using just the, just the, uh, the historical data. That you would argue that a lot of the catcher's value—I mean, a really substantial part of a catcher's value—comes yeah. from their framing, and that's something that will, I think, will change in in the future. And is, a, and a, I'm somewhat uncomfortable imagining that the greatest catchers ever were ones who could essentially trick the umpires. But yeah. let's get let's 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 spend some time talking about baseball, um, and and getting. Current, right. So obviously, you know, the Yankees, well, the Yankees, right. Are they doing okay? They're doing okay. But one of the things that is happening in baseball league-wide is another year of massive home runs. Yeah. Now, you'd be tempting to say, well, last year was a year of massive home runs. It was actually a little down from the previous year, but it was still massive, you know, all-time highs, territory. And this year, we're looking at 20% increases. We're on the pace for over 6,000 home runs. Um, it's an absurd number of home runs, and we're, we just saw a Yankees set not only a team record but a major league record. They homered in twenty eight. I think it's twenty eight straight games. And if you look at the Yankee lineup, you obviously you look at that thing and you go, "Holy cow!" You have to be a little bit nervous as a as a Red Sox. Just fan. a little bit. <laughs> I mean, just they, a little yeah. Bit. So just so with with Aaron Judge leading off. Um, really amazing. So, this is, yeah. this is, this is a, this is the guy who they have leading off, but you have up and down the lineup, even their second baseman, Glaber Torres, is at 19 home runs. DJ Delemayu who's hit a hit 10 or 11, he's supposed to be a singles guy. It's just across the board, but you mentioned the Twins earlier. This is a yeah. team that is, that is, that is outstripping the Yankees when it comes yeah. to, to home runs. So, the question is, you know, why is this happening? So a couple years ago, I mean, in 2015 is when the, the home run sort of jumped, and Major League Baseball commissioned an analysis of the ball. And I think as uh, Manfred, the commissioner, yeah. essentially recognized that there's something new about the ball, at mm-hmm. least post-2015. So here's something that I didn't know that I just recently learned. A wonderful article um, was published in The Athletic, and um, uh, let me see if I can... And the, by uh, a doctor, a physicist, doc- Dr. Meredith Wills, um, and she... Did a very deep analysis into the ball, but one thing that I learned, which is interesting, is you know who owns Rawlings, the company that makes the baseball? No, the MLB. Oh well,
2: I guess <laughs> that's not totally surprising. So but it's
1: it's 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 almost as if the MLB is is in control of the baseballs. Now that's not obviously it's not illegal. Yeah. It's not, but the one of the things that but the, the problem is is that it makes a conflict of interest, and I think it's interesting does what does mlb want out of these balls so we uh, it was observed that the coefficient well however you want to describe it um so there was a, a report put out by mlb that re- that discovered that the ball does have significant changes yeah and those changes can account for at least part but not all of the yeah. increase in the home runs that we see and primarily what was observed was a a lowering of the of the Essentially, the friction of the ball as it moves through the air, and it was—it's a little bit more aerodynamic. I think just due to the
2: seams, I, I guess, think possibly due yeah. to the, th-
1: the seams. So, yeah. what Dr. Meredith Wills has done is, she went and she actually looked at the balls again, and she discovered, and this article was in the Athletic, that there's actually three aspects of the ball today—the new ball compared to the previous years—that are extremely different, and those include the seams, which are lower, but also a smoother leather. And that actually okay. matters because it's yeah. friction. Yeah, yeah. And the final one is the ball is more round, and a more round ball moves through the air more fully. Interesting. Now, so, and she actually did a very careful analysis, but one of the things that she, she noted was the differences are statistically significant. Yeah. And as, as I remarked the, in the concept of statistical significance is that that means she does a bunch of measurements, and the balls are very different from ball to ball. So what she was able to observe and marked is the differences mm. between these balls are not likely to have happened by chance. Right. That's what statistical significance yeah. says. It's not just you got by accident a bunch of balls that are a little bit different this year. It's real, but you didn't answer the question: Is the difference practically significant enough to explain the right. home Right? Like, surge? like
2: it, are are those three sort of differences? That's right. Like, if if you kind of put them, if you had all three of them, would that completely account for exactly or the even increasing home runs. Even
1: half or two thirds? And that's my I, I, I would do. I,
2: my, my, I would guess that you know. I, Mechani- you know, my my belief, you know, is that it probably wouldn't anyway because I think, you know, we're, we're, what we're looking at with this kind of, like, influx of uh, or, you know, increase in home runs is not just that the balls themselves have changed, but maybe, you know, as a as a product of the ball changing our home runs. Home runs are just, you know, there's a whole new generation of players coming up that exactly. are, are trained specifically to hit home runs. I mean, there's been such an emphasis on, like, launch angle and also patience at the plate, which is what's leading to high walks and strikeouts as well, that the game has just kind of changed. Right. You know, substantially, not just in terms of the ball itself, but in terms of kind of like the orientation of
1: the personnel playing it. So this, you know? is, so this is essentially the alternative hypothesis. We have two of yeah. them and it's undoubtedly a mixture. One is that the balls are substantially different and the, yeah. al- the other is that the players are substantially and
2: different. And I think I think the, you know, in my in my mind the answer is both both are correct. But both on the other hand,
1: correct. I'm going to I'm going to push back at the players because at least for this year's surge because the players are not that different this year than last year.
2: Oh yeah, no, that's true. They're not true. 20% I, different. Yeah, no, no. I, I, right. And so I mean maybe kind of like you know, that that might kind of give us some way of kind of deconvolving those mm-hmm. two kind of factors, the players versus the balls, in the sense that obviously changes to the balls can... If 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 they you know any any change to the ball can kind of be implemented very quickly and and can kind of be you know you can see the results much more quickly than kind of yeah the evolution of the kind of the personnel of the field so yeah I mean I think long term kind of trends this this increased emphasis on paid, pay, uh, play patience and home run hitting and de-emphasis on just putting the ball into play that that kind of is a longer term trend that I think is mostly about players changing. The, the way they uh, the, play the, the way they play uh, but yeah I mean you know from last season to this season another jump in home runs I right. doubt that's due to players I mean it
1: just it just it looks it looks epic to to yeah. my eyes and a couple of pieces of, of anecdotal data I mean so for example there's already been a 505 foot home run yeah now I will I will push back on that because first of all 505 would be like an all-time statcast record yeah this is in this is in top 10 20 home runs of was all that time. Level. That was bizarre. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was crushed indeed. You watched it. Oh, I saw it. <laughs> the video. It, it was impressive. But but, uh, the, but
2: fans uh, and the fans in the sands are like, what's this doing uh, coming at us? Man, know, we're, we're not are, supposed to get home runs up here. We are
1: way high. But there's probably been at least, I mean, maybe, maybe our producer Matt Desk can, can look it up, but the bottom line is, is that there's been at least 400, uh, I would say 4 to 10, 480 foot home runs and 480 foot is a long, long way just yeah. as, as a measure of, I mean, this is history, so you're gonna, you know, I'm going to geek out here a little bit. But no, I it, love the old, the old polo grounds, the polo grounds where the, the Giants used to play was, was essentially shaped like a polo field, which yeah. is what it used to be. And what it meant was it was very, very narrow in the, in the, on the foul lines and extremely deep in center field because it was kind of very, you know, rectangular. Yeah. And center field was about 485 feet away. And I think in the entire history of the Pole Grounds, four balls were hit over the wall in center field. Wow. So it was an extraordinary rarity in years past to hit balls that far. Now, if you look at the athletes today, <laughs> you just
2: look at Yeah, these no, guys, that's right. That's they're right. just
1: enormous. Even your second baseman, Gleyber you know, Torres, looks, I mean, you got little guys, you know, like Altuve, who's like five foot four on a good day, you know, ripping home runs. But he's built. And these yeah. guys are obviously extremely strong. So that could be a, a potential factor. But so, Malcolm. Mike Salfino has another article he actually wrote in for Five Thirty Eight um, talking about the the increase in home runs and his opinion is it's simply they're just going for home runs yeah and that's that's the explanation and he just he essentially said strikeouts and home runs they just go together
2: yeah no and I and I think it is sort of I, I think there has been you know um, I I think in part I mean I I, I like I like to take credit well, as a field I like to take credit for the this kind of change in the game whether we view it as actually a positive change excitement-wise or not, that I think there is, has been an ongoing, over the last 10 years, um, trend away from trying to put the ball into actually the field of play. And in part, it's, you know, I mean, defenses, now that we kind of know about, you know, where balls go and oh like an analyze fielding, yeah. the defensive shifting that's going on is dramatic. It's something that's noticeable even to the most casual fans, well, just- how much shifting is occurring now. And that really is taking a lot of hits away from players, and so hitters are responding being like well i'm not sure i can actually kind of hit out of this shift so i'll just try and hit it out of the park and make it a mood point right um and and so yeah and i think that it certainly that increased plate patience that we're seeing Come goes along with that because hitters are definitely waiting, you know, these long and during these long at bats for the one pitch they think they can launch out of the park, and that's going to lead to way more strikeouts as they wait a little bit too long, or walks as they you know wait and, and the they pitcher wait and can't and actually lucky. you know. Well, I think that's the, the that, those
1: are the two major sabermetric contributions to baseball. If you look, if I one of the questions I ask my students, and when we're studying sports analytics, or what is the biggest sabermetric or analytical contribution to each sport. And we can yeah. kind of, maybe we'll finish our half hour by, by running this down. And I would say that for baseball, the biggest contribution was to recognize that walks are extremely valuable. They're not yep. things to be avoided. That strikeouts were really no worse than any other out. Mm-hmm. And that home runs are much more valuable than you give credit to. And if you put yeah. those three together, you recognize that OBP, OPS, these skills, these things need to be va- nurtured and valued. Now, of course, there's a zillion other things to talk about in, in baseball, but I would go with number one. I'm going to turn to you and ask your, ask your, what do you think the biggest analytical contribution has been to football?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, ooh.
1: Yes, and, and, then, yeah. and then I will remind you that we actually asked this question to our guest last week, and he did answer it. Um, and... I, and uh, and maybe it yeah. it's not your opinion. I'll, I'll refresh you. Yeah, that no, I,
2: I mean, I, I, I guess I kind of want to give this a little bit more thought. But like, um, well, I, I, I say I don't think it's fourth down decision making. It
1: isn't. Exactly. No, it's it is definitely not fourth down <laughs> decision making. In fact, in fact, I got some numbers on that. So Did you remember what he said? No, he said passing. It's the yeah. it's the recognition that passing is just more valuable. Yeah, yeah, no,
2: that's right. In fact, he I, I do remember now this conversation. He was talking about how he thinks we're kind of almost in an intermediary in terms of that. I think we're going to go even more. That's pass right. Heavy, we're going to see more. Um, in the future. So
1: and it is not fourth down. And maybe yeah. maybe in our last half hour, in our last segment, we can we can deep dive into some of the data that I, that I got on fourth downs. But no, they're not yeah. going for on fourth down with some exceptions as much as I used to. All right. So now basketball is easy. I'll take that one. Basketball is undoubtedly. The three-point dominance, the spaced uh, offense, and, yeah. and and the recognition that three points is fifty percent more than two, and and, the, and those shots are much more efficient. So let's maybe finish our half hour. I'll ask you, uh, hockey or soccer? Is there any transformation? No, yeah, no, I,
2: I think I think so. Um, one one that I'll bring up. I don't think this is actually the most transformative one because it's not. It, it it just doesn't have the potential to transform as much as some other things, but. Uh, people pull goaltenders a lot earlier now.
1: Oh right, of course. Yeah, there's the, the great yeah. episode of uh, I don't know if you if you listen to Malcolm Gladwell's uh, revisionist history, but he has an entire episode that's all about taking chances, and he, yeah. he has a wonderful storytelling style. And he begins by saying, "Pull the goalie, pull the goalie." <laughs> yeah, no, and so so goaltenders are being pulled earlier. So I think that's probably that's probably in line with the recognition that taking chances are far more valuable than people realize that most people's approach to decision making is a little bit too conservative yeah
2: and and i think this is perhaps why we struggle a little bit to um you know kind of have these transformative uh kind of like aspects of analytics and football or at least that they've they've been slower than some other sports Is it does seem that football does kind of you know at at the kind of decision making level there's a, a tremendous amount of risk aversion
1: an Incredible amount of risk yeah. aversion, but I think in life I mean, most people oh, yes, tend to be risk averse. True. But if you think about it, I'm, I'm going f- to, I guess, I'll try to f- finish with soccer. One of the reasons why soccer, at least to the public domain, it doesn't seem to have a analytical revolution is that I think some of the good data is essentially always, always has been private. Yeah. Um, if I had to guess one thing in soccer, and maybe i get some, yeah. so maybe I'll get some pushback from our soccer experts. Um, I would probably have to say it probably has to be in player evaluation. I mean, if you look at what uh, the premier leagues have done in, in you know in europe they they seem to every year dominate by buying the best players obviously statistics and analytics has to be useful in putting together a team otherwise how do you how do you use that money effectively um and you and and maybe some teams like leicester city which won the english premier league a couple years ago with a with a shoestring budget um maybe they were able to use analytics but yeah, i can't I, put my I, finger I, on it like i don't no, know what exactly they do, right? and
2: i i want i i want i wish michael lewis was falling around leicester city for that That's year right. or whatever like that, that. I, been... I, I want the kind of money ball book about how that happened. And I, I mean, the kind of, you know, I mean, I, I guess it's still interesting, but not nearly as interesting to me. Story would be they just got lucky. They were able to, to just kind of get lucky over the course of an entire season. <laughs> it's hard to and imagine. Win okay. the champion, it is hard to imagine. There must have been something going on. I just I
1: want the moneyball version for Leicester City. Exactly, but listen—the actual Moneyball was written about the Oakland A's, and the Oakland A's are again in it of this course year, they are. I uh, love which that is team. which is amazing. For twenty-one, twenty-two years in a row, since yeah. Billy Bean has been the general manager of vice president of operations, that team has been competitive, never winning any major playoff round, but always being in the mix yeah. um, by the end of the season, almost every other year. And in a few moments, we'll be bringing to our uh, to our show Rick Peterson. Rick Peterson was a, Money, yeah. a coach for the original Moneyball A's, and he always has great insight. Into baseball. It is time for baseball and it is time for a call to the bullpen.
2: Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be now all for his for starter ball this ball. afternoon.
0: Einstein said it best, it's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the old one count, Chipper Jones at 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data.
1: Wharton Moneyball's called to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. So joining us in the studio is Rick Peterson, former Major League Pitching Coach for the Mets, the A's, the Brewers, the Orioles. He's now a sought-after motivational speaker and is author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick, welcome back to the show.
0: How are you guys doing, man? Are you guys like enjoying the hot summer days now? As we're starting to like get into that pennant fever.
1: Yeah, well, Shane, I know. How, what do you feel about it? I know I enjoy it. I take, yeah,
2: I, no, I'm uh, yeah, I'm an, I'm enjoying it. I kind of like this uh, this part of the year where we can kind of. I was sort of saying before it's 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 sort of hard to get particularly excited about kind of you know the hot teams in april or may because you know it's probably not gonna last but by late june that's right you know i think you know things like the twins are seem legitimate
1: we're gonna ask you about the Twins in a second but you know you talk about the heat but but rick you live at the beach which is right a little bit nice right this time of year right yeah Undoubtedly. All right, so I don't know how much baseball you get to catch um, in the evenings or either you're traveling around um, watching games live, but let's talk about the Twins. Tell me, no one predicted them, and they are you know, dominating their division. And what do you think? What, what's your take on the Twins? Well, I, when you say
0: nobody, nobody picked them, the insiders in the game, picked, you know, they were right on the Twins all along. I mean, you could see this coming. And even the years I was with the Orioles, and, you know, we, we would play the AAA club with the twins and, and you could see these young players coming, you know, and, and, and especially when they, they had the transition in the front office and, you know, now, now when you look at it, they're a blend of Texas. They're a blend of Tampa. Um, you know, they have some staff members that came over from Tampa because yeah, I think Tampa has really been the model of, of, of really the true money ball team.
1: Yeah. That, yeah.
0: that, that, that's really the low payroll that, that seems to like somehow, you know, the little engine that that, that could or, or or maybe couldn't but that almost does every year. So let me just jump
1: and, in on that, Rick, because I know that mm-hmm. the the Tampa leads the majors or at least at least anecdotally leads the majors in the size of their analytics staff. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe passed by the Yankees or, or to be in the same league as the yeah. Yankees is just remarkable. Where do the twins lie in that uh on that score, are they also heavy analytics? do they are they are, they are they are they
0: they are now they are now yeah, they are now big time heavy analytics. I mean you know, they're trying to follow follow that model of you know, of Houston and Texas and Boston and the Yankees and so on down the line. I mean, I mean all the teams are really jumping in right now. It's just the fact that some teams are further ahead than other teams because they they figured out they figured out how to use some of the like for for pitching, for example. Initially, when TrackMan came in, it was really an evaluation tool. It really, it really wasn't a developmental
1: tool. It was for the umpires, wasn't it? I mean, we talked about this in our show before. It was really to help the umpires call strikes better. No,
0: well, that that was the very beginning of the analytics. It was all about the evaluation of the umpires, exactly. And and that that was Questech initially,
2: right? And then
0: and then as people started looking at launch angles and spin rates and exit velocities and so on down the line, you know, it opened up everybody's mind. You know, I mean, I think as and you guys are experts at this. Is that, you know, it's it's, the, it's not the people who have the best answers; it's the people who have the best questions, and then then you start seeking the best answers. You know, and and I think the people that are that have been the brightest in this area are the people that kept asking the best questions, and then they kept they kept going and they kept going they kept going, and and now I think you you come to a place. I mean, I was amazed at some of the things that you know that that they're doing from the mental game. you know, some kind of apparatus that you put on your head that that actually, you know, stimulates brain activity. And and in my understanding, and you mentioned soccer earlier in your last segment, and, you know, they they have sensors now that they're putting inside the, the player's bodies that are measuring some kind of, Brain activity so that they can measure some kind of neuroplasticity. I don't know the details of it, but I mean, that's how sophisticated all this is getting. Well, I have to say,
1: I I have not heard about this either and it's interesting that you brought it up and maybe we'll hear about it in the future but let's talk about the technology that we do know exists and mm-hmm. what they have done with that so you do mention the track man and now we know the spin rates and the and the, and the trajectories of all the balls so i had the time i spent some time reading the book uh, the making of the mvp this is ben Lindbergh's book with travis sawchuck they're talking about how they're how pitchers have are building themselves up from you know ground zero using this this new data have you had a chance to read the book do you have any reactions
0: no, I have not had a chance to read the book. You know, I, I've heard about the book, and it's, it's a definitely it's a mu- it's a must read. I think you know as you move forward towards understanding how how you're using these technologies so you know, most effectively.
1: So let me ask you a question then. So there there the, the are a mm-hmm. couple of uh, pitchers who are who are in some sense. Described as being built like you know, Trevor Bowers is the, is, the, right. is, the, is the guy who yep. sort of decides i'm going to create this pitch I'm going to look at get feedback and I'm going to do it. but I would guess most pitchers are really not invested. so if you had to make a guess, what fraction of you know really major league pitchers are, are heavily invested in this track man or this the data streams
0: The pitchers themselves probably not many at all it's, it's, it's more the, it's more the front offices and the, and the coaching staffs and, and I think because of the analytic teams. You know, like Houston in particular, you know their analytic team now has has got their coaches invested in it, so that they're starting to understand it and use it more as a developmental tool, as opposed to just a just an evaluation tool. And, and I think and Derek Cole or Cole is probably you know a poster child for that. Ver, Verlander, yeah. Verlander as well, but probably Garrett Cole even more so because when you see. When you see the spin rates of his breaking ball and his, and I and I call it a breaking ball because what they're calling these power sliders are they're really like power slurve, mm-hmm. you know, so whatever you call it doesn't really make a difference. But it just has it's a lot of. <laughs> it's hard to hit. Yeah, it's hard to hit. Exactly right. Exactly right. And and he and he chased it out of the strike zone for for whatever reason, you know. But Garrett Cole, his spin rates have have jumped dramatically. You know, so when you see his fastball spin rate and his breaking ball spin rate jump like that from when he left Pittsburgh, you know that 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 that's really eye opening. And then you take a look at the way that, you know, he implements his game. You know, he no longer even throws a two seamer. That that's all he threw was two seamers.
1: Well. So, so let fastball. me ask you, as a, as a former pitching coach, mm-hmm. how does a pitcher who doesn't have a who has say an average spin rate? develop a fast spin rate. I mean, what is it? Is Is it it just really about
2: the kind of, like, is is really the kind of huge advance of these kind of developmental tools just that they kind of can, when they're experimenting, they can just kind of get that immediate feedback? Is that really what's kind of making this sort of more, I guess, feasible to overhaul pitchers um, in this day and age? Yeah,
0: I think it's a a combination of of high-speed videotape and and high-speed video so you can see exactly where your fingers are. You know, as the ball's coming out of your hand, are your fingers behind the ball, or are they off to the side of the ball? Um, I, I think that the implementation of you know different substances that that you can get a better feel for the ball. I mean, I think you heard you know earlier. I mean, it was a big story in New York that Noah Syndergaard totally lost his his slider, and he felt it was. Something to do with the texture of the ball is what he was complaining
1: about. Well, actually, we mentioned this in our first half hour. There's mm-hmm. a new analysis that The Athletic um, put posted up. It was actually an interesting analysis by Dr. Meredith Wills, and she measured the coefficient of friction of the leather. And actually, just by taking the, the ball, not the, not taking the leather off the ball, putting it on a on a platform and then tilting it until it slid down the started to slide down the hill. And this is a use. This is how you measure the coefficient of efficient. And she, cl- she claimed that it, this, this year's ball is much smoother than previous mm-hmm. years. And without knowing exactly why one hypothesis is that the, that the new ownership, which is MLB of Rawlings has instituted more, you know, better industrial, um, processes which make smooth balls and that of course is hard for a pitcher but let me ask you a question so if you're arguing that it's the it's the place where you hold your fingers that causes a spin rate does it have to do with the strength of your arm the wrist the motion? is it athleticism or is it just positioning? all of that all of,
0: it all, of, all of all of that without question you know and how the ball comes out of your hand you know your your ability you know very similar and golf has been ahead of this you know, way ahead of this technology, you know, very similar to when you watch a golf tournament and, you know, a guy hits a ball like 15 feet past the pin and it spins back towards, you know, towards the pin, you know, towards the hole. It has a backspin, you know, and, and, and that that's what they're measuring with the, with the track man data, you know, the ability, you know, to spin the ball. And, and and you hear it all the time. It's like, well, when they're in the rough, they can't spin the ball like they can if they're if they're in the fairway, right? You know, I mean, so it has it, it has odds to do with texture and grips, you know, without question. And and I think what's, what it's come down to is the fact that you have now have people analytically have started to figure this out, and and, and you know we we're we're down that path. When I was in Baltimore, you know, we, we brought a pitcher in, a former major league pitcher you know, whose arm was still in good enough shape where we had bullpen sessions and we would just play around with a whole bunch of different things, you know, whether, whether it's pine tar or rosin or, you know, different, different grips, you know, gr- different grip substances. Um, you know, we were looking at all different types of things, you know, just to explore. To yeah, just to, to kind
2: out. of explore sort of the, the bounds of what you could do mm-hmm. with a change in, right. Change in approach. Right.
0: right, because because it's very, it's very limited. That's why when you see, like, Teams like the the Mets, for example, whose bullpen is really struggling and they have multiple guys in their bullpen struggling. When you have multiple guys in your bullpen struggling, it is very difficult to to be able to work with those guys because – you know, you can't go to the bullpen and throw forty-five, fifty pitches and then be okay for tonight's game.
1: Yeah, right. You know,
0: you you throw forty-five, fifty pitches and you're you're not good. Today's Wednesday, you're not good until at least Friday, may, may, maybe even Saturday. So, so actually,
1: I want, I want to ask a question about that. So, the I've been listening, listening and watching a lot of Yankees baseball. They seem to be using their starters through five innings. That's just basically as much as they're doing. They're even bullpenning every now and then, beginning with a—they're both basically constructing a game entirely on, on relievers. And this has stressed out the, the bullpen. so I think Chapman pitched yesterday for the fourth time out of far five or six games, and Odovino's pitched a whole bunch of games in a row. These are amazing relievers. What is, is there, does the managers or the pitching coaches kind of have a maximum? I mean, is there a certain number of games in a row that you say you can't do this anymore? You must oh. have red. Of
0: course. of course. I mean, you, you look at every different factor that you can look at. You know, you, you look at, you know, how does this guy pitch on one-day rest? How does he pitch with two days rest? How does he pitch with three days rest? How does he pitch when he pitches back-to-back days? You know, back-to-back-to-back days? I mean, you, you look at every factor. And, and, and But one of the biggest factors that it's so difficult for for people to understand, especially with pitchers, that when you get to this point of the season, the pitchers are, are, they're right up against that wall. And you don't know how close they really are to that wall. And when they hit that wall, they're not coming off of that wall for a long time. Right. It's not, it's not, it's not like, hey, I'm tired. Let me rest for a couple of days. I'll be okay. I mean, and you take a look at, and especially when you look at pitchers who pitch deep into the postseason, the numbers of the, 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 the the performance numbers of those pitchers the following year are almost inevitably they're all, they're always in decline. You know, so you look at like for example, it was a, it was a big controversial sign for 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 the Red Sox. They signed Evaldi basically basically because of this heroic outing that he had in the in the World Series last year. Well, that that one outing probably was the outing that did him in.
1: Amazing. So your your hypothesis is that because they, in order to get the maximum performance, they have to push themselves right to the edge, and if they cross the edge, it's a giant drop. It's a
0: it's a giant drop, you know, yeah. without question. I mean, you look at. I mean, everybody's talking about potential Bumgarner trade, but Bumgarner stuff is not anywhere, anywhere close to what it was a couple of years ago, a few, three years ago. And it's you know interesting, I mean?
2: Rick, that you bring up the Red Sox uh, because they also—I mean, I was watching That's them quite closely team, by the uh, uh, near the start of the season, and they kind of—they uh, definitely had kind of a, 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 I guess, an unconventional strategy or approach to spring training for their pitchers, where they didn't actually pitch their pitchers, and their starters, Valdi, Sale, etc., very off-price in the in spring training. And then the regular season hit, and it seemed like the pitchers weren't kind of ready. Really? They weren't ready. And, and, and so yeah. uh, I think Cora got a lot of flack, at least in the early season, for not pitching them more in spring training to get them ready for the regular season. But I think part of the motivation... For that was just how much stress they were under in in, uh, in the playoffs last year. So, did, did you kind of were you kind of keeping track of that kind of unconventional strategy by the Red Sox? And what do you think of it?
0: Well, I, I think I think they got exactly what they planned for. You know, they started the season, and pitchers are still. they're they're in spring
2: training mode. Yeah. So they kind of, they made a conscious decision that we're probably not going to be as competitive as we should be in the first few weeks of the season, and that will hopefully pay dividends later on in the season. Well, I'm going
1: to remind everyone, and this is always a good public service announcement, that a win in April counts exactly the same as a win in September.
0: Really? (laughs) Really? I mean, you you, you keep adding by
1: one? It's amazing. Listen, you're listening to Wharton Moneyball, and we are talking to Rick Peterson, (laughs) who <laughs> who is our who is our expert on mathematics and is reminding everyone and agreeing that one plus one is one. And and when you add it, it is communicative. It doesn't matter where you do it. Um, I do want to ask you, turn um, the, the conversation a little bit. Um, what we've been noticing in the major leagues is, uh, obviously with this proliferation of power in home runs, you know, you got you got, the Yankees have top to bottom home run hitters. The question is, who leads off? And the Yankees are leading off right now with with Aaron Judge. We've seen the Phillies lead off with Bryce Harper. What do you think about this strategy? How does it how does it affect the pitcher? And would you would you consider an alternate?
0: There's no question about it. it. Here's one of the things and I'm going to try to say this very quickly. But one of the things that we fell into that we looked at looked into when I was with the A's, I asked Paul to do the DeBetessa one day. I said, "Paul, is there?" And you and I have talked about this, you know, before off the show, Adi. About is, is there is there any um, is there any data that shows winning percentage for a team based on the opposing batters that the other team puts to home plate? In other words, the amount of batters they put to home plate. So, to oversimplify, you want to score more, you want to score the teams that score the most runs, they send more people to home plate than anybody else, is what it comes down to.
1: They not, you know, we call that not making outs. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah not, not, not making outs, exactly. So, what it came down to. What we found is how we how it related to how we use our bullpen. That this was back in the Moneyball days. It's changed now. That that if if you sent if the other opposing team sent 38 total batters to home to home plate, our winning percentage at 38 would be just over 60 percent, about 51, 62 percent. The 39th batter that comes to home plate back in those days, and it lasted for about 20 years, it, the, the winning percentage dropped by 20 percent. It, it dropped just wow. to 40 to 40 percent. And and that was the that, the 39th batter coming to home plate when I was with the A's. That was A Rod coming to home plate for the for the fifth time. The three hole hitter, the number three hole hitter in the lineup, coming to home plate for the fifth time. So if we played Texas 19 times and he comes to plate 19 more times, look at what A Rod does in 19 at bats. Yeah. And so you didn't hear any 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 of the analysts talk about this. The, the TV analysts. That's why what you've seen in the last five years. Is that the, the three hole hitter has now been hitting second? Trout hits second. Judge hits second. And now, now that you're looking at it, they're starting to say, like, well, wait a second. You know, if we can get him up, you know, how many more at bats in, in 162 games would Judge have if he let off as opposed to hitting second? You know, if he comes up another 25 more times in the course of a year, you know, would you take those 25 at bats? And then can you, can you construct the back end of your lineup? You know, this was the whole concept of the opener. The opener was is the fact that if we can get somebody to take us through the through the middle of the lineup for the first time, you know, as a reliever, now now we can bring our starter in to face, like say, the fifth hitter or the sixth hitter. Exactly. And that, and then now he's going to get he he's got a better chance to get eighteen outs than he does if he starts the game you know i mean that's the whole concept of the opener right so no, it's know? really
2: and really interesting because the trade off here of course is that you're trading off kind of you know with your best hitters the chance of getting them to the plate more often with if they're kind of early in the order versus getting them to the plate when there's potentially men on base which would only happen if they were later in the lineup
0: right exactly and the yankees because their lineup is so deep
2: yeah they don't they, have to worry about know, that yeah,
0: yeah when you look at the back end of their lineup that, that's like almost the middle of the lineup for other teams, you know, to, to a degree. You know? So I mean, I mean so, so you're really seeing this whole shift of analytics, and it's very subtle. And because the analytic, the analytic departments are pretty much, you know, collaborating with the manager and the coaching staff, you do, you really don't get the answers of why they're doing this. You know, you just see that you just see that in the last five years the three-hole hitter has now been hitting second in everybody's lineup. Everybody copycat it and everybody
1: started But doing but the I same do thing. notice but you take a, you take these these hitters and Mike Trout of course is an exception, but guys like Judge strike out a lot. Do you really want your leadoff hitter to be a to be a strikeout guy? Uh, um and he does walk as well but typically the the starter the very first pitch of the game is almost always a fastball you can't you can't telegraph a judge a fastball that's a disaster right so this is all going to shake things up what do you think
0: there's no question about it. it it changes the whole it changes the whole you know what do you say old school mentality of You know, you used to want your two-hole hitter is a guy that can hit behind the runner, move a runner,
1: bunt. That's right.
0: You know, someone down the line, hit and run. Okay, well, that's not what you. That's not what we want our two-hole hitter to do now. We want our two-hole hitter to hit a two-one homer if the first guy gets on base. You know, and you know, so so it comes down to, you know, especially when you take a look at the Yankees as you as you mentioned with this enormous power that they have, is that you know how how many times can they get their best power guys to home plate which is gives them the best chance to score the most runs which is what they're doing
1: yep they certainly have been doing it i mean it's absurd what the yankees are doing with their home runs and listen we appreciate you joining us rick it's been great to have you on our show and we look forward to having you back again later in the summer so thanks rick for joining us
0: always a pleasure guys
1: always right. a nice. pleasure terrific this has been the conclusion of our first hour of Wharton Moneyball. This is uh, Audie Weiner, professor of statistics of the Wharton School of Business, talking sports and statistics with my colleague and friend Shane Jensen. Um, he, of course, is wearing his Red Sox cap. Um, we're going to take a break from baseball for a half hour and we're going to talk basketball. Basketball will be uh, top of the hour with Ian Levy, and we hope you will join us after our break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business
1: Radio. Welcome back, Warden Moneyball. Top of the hour. That's our um, that's our opening music. We're leading the second hour with our opening music. That's great. Um, last week we had the demise of a Boston team in a playoffs, which was something that I relished yeah. a little bit. And you of course, that? we end, we, we, yeah. So this year, this year was, well, there's nothing going on right now. We're in the midst of a playoff race. Uh, the Red Sox, of course, are in it as usual. They will undoubtedly be in the playoffs, I think. That's well, not undoubtedly. undoubtedly, not undoubtedly, but undoubtedly. I I'd still think it's, a, it's a likely, more likely than not. But sure. baseball, of course, is the, is the center of attention in, in, in the sporting worlds in terms of actual, um, games being played. But basketball, which just wound up a week ago, has seen a lot of activity. We've had the draft. We are now into the, the stage where we're signing free agents. And to talk basketball and all things basketball on our show this morning, we have Ian Levy, who is a senior NBA editor for Nylon Calculus, a division of Fansided, and The Step Back. He has previously written for FiveThirtyEight for Vice Sports, Sporting News, and The Cauldron at Sports Illustrated. Ian, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on. Well, we are certainly delighted to have a basketball expert because I will say uh, this is uh, my expertise is n- never been all that much into basketball. So, and Shane is uh, is uh, knows a lot of basketball, but football and baseball I would say are his yeah. specialties. So, talk to us a little bit like we're dummies, and so that's just the, that's just the beginning of it. Obviously, we do know analytics and statistics, but we are not as deep down into the weeds with basketball as you might you might expect. So, let's start by talking about the draft, which happened a week, you know, less a week ago. Um, tell me a little bit about your thoughts about how the draft went and, and, and we'll, dig, we'll dive into how the, uh, the teams make their decisions right after.
3: Yeah, it was it was interesting. There was a few, you know, I think at the top it kind of went the way people expected. Um, I mean, uh, probably by the middle of the college basketball season, everybody knew Zion Williamson was going to be the number one pick. That was, you know, locked in and pretty obvious. And uh, John Morant at two and R.J. Barrett at three to the Knicks. Um, you know, that had, had sort of been pretty well reported going into the drafts. So there weren't a ton of surprises there. So can I ask um, a- there was-
1: can just to jump in here um what is the gap between zion williamson and say the number two and three in your mind
3: it's pretty enormous uh i mean wow. uh, quite a few of the uh of the draft experts that i follow had zion williamson alone in the top tier and then had a completely empty tier two uh and and John ja Morant and and rj barrett were kind of headlining tier three which is um you know, guys who were sort of likely to be solid starters, but probably not much star potential. Um, to, uh, you know, I think overall it was sort of looked at as a disappointing draft. There were, you know, I think there's a lot of guys top to bottom who could be solid contributors. You're going to play important roles on good teams, but Zion Williamson was really the only guy you look at as, as kind of a surefire star. Um, and, and then just to put it in reference, one of the most, Interesting intellectual exercises to me always is thinking about the top few guys in the draft and how you would compare them to uh, or how you would rank them to prospects from the year before or two years before, and it's always tricky because at that point you know you have some information you've seen how guys have played in the NBA, um, you know you, you sort of have that that bias that's sort of baked in. But uh, most of the people I talked to thought that Zion Williamson, um, you know, probably would have been taken first in a draft with you know say Markel Fultz, Jason Tatum, and Lonzo. The ball, uh, but probably not uh, taken first over somebody like Anthony Davis a few years ago.
1: Really? How about Joel Embiid? Where is he? Uh,
3: probably not. I mean, Embiid's Embiid's issues were a little bit different, you know, because he was sort of injured going into the um, going into the draft, so he was not quite as as, uh, as sure a thing as you know he's looked
1: now. Okay, so now the draft is pretty deep, and, the, and for many teams, that matters a lot. What do teams mostly get right, and what do they mostly get wrong when they do drafting?
3: Um. You know, it, it's sort of all over the board. I mean, we have some teams who have, uh, you know, sort of demonstrated a good track record over the past couple of years. Um, but, you know barring traded picks, you know, teams have, uh, you know, sort of at a base level, they have two picks going into each year. And so it doesn't take much, uh, you know, for an outlier either way, you know, a player to, you know, really surprise for their draft slot or a player to, you know, sort of bust out for their draft slot. It doesn't take that much to, um, you know, to really color the sample uh, and and make a team, you know, look like a great great drafting team or, you know, not a very good one, I think. The, the most useful context for analytics when it comes to draft prospects is really thinking about a range of possible outcomes. Um, so, you know, you can measure a player's statistical production, um, for most of the players you get some physical information from the agility testing and things like that at the combine. Uh and then you use that to kind of build uh you know, build a distribution. You know, this guy is likely to to sort of top out at this level. Um, you know, maybe this guy's ceiling is a little bit higher, maybe this guy's floor is a little bit higher. Um, but you know, the tricky part is really projecting them into a specific context. You know, even Zion Williamson who sort of looked as looked at as the you know, maybe the one sure thing in this draft you know, his outcome is completely different uh or potentially completely different on the Pelicans with this Anthony Davis trade having been made. You know, if, if Anthony Davis... Stays, you know, he's looking at a different outcome for the next couple of years. If, um, you know, the Pelicans pull the trigger on a different trade and, and land Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, that gives him a slightly different outcome. Um, you know, uh, if they got a, uh, a package from the Lakers that was not as heavy on, on players who were ready to play right away, like Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram and maybe more heavy on draft picks and, you know, he's going in with more of a bare bones roster where there's more responsibility, that changes his outcome too. So, you know, the tricky thing is you can, you can do some, uh, projecting, uh, on players sort of in the abstract. Uh, and I think it's much more difficult to sort of put them into context on a team context, the players around them, the style of play, um, you know, how they're going to respond mentally to all these different challenges. That kind of stuff is, is a little bit more of a black box.
1: So it's very difficult. I imagine a team to figure out. If, who the right player is to match their already uh, developed and star-heavy team. So, like take the Sixers, for example, which have mm-hmm. a bunch of stars and and not clear, clear who they'll retain going forward. But when they have to make a decision, and I actually would like you to talk about their choice. But what is the factors that a team that's ta- that's picking kind of deep in the draft um, already has all its stars in place? What are they looking for? that would be different from a team like Yeah, that...
2: and I guess just kind of to make a more specific like how how much do you think teams uh that don't have an obvious need are kind of balancing sort of like complementary kind of, you know, assets in, in in drafted players versus just trying to grab the best player available when it when when their slot comes up.
3: Yeah, I think it really depends on where the team is in their evolution, you know. I think the 76ers um it makes the draft a little bit easier. Um, I, I guess I would back up. I, I think sort of there's spots on both ends of the spectrum where it's fairly easy. So you look at, um, you know, the 76ers under Hinky a couple years ago, uh, you know, not to, to downplay the significance of the work that goes into it, but, um, you know, I think that the, the job is easier there because you are not concerned about fit. You know that the structure, you know, you're talking about those trust the process 76ers back at the beginning. You know that the structure of that team, um, in terms of how they're going to play on the court, what the rotation looks like, you know that that's going to change probably several times over. Before you get to the final iteration of the team where you're talking about them as a contender. So you have the luxury of not really thinking about fit and not worrying about context as much mm. and, you know, looking at that di- distribution of outcomes for these players, thinking about them more in the abstract. And, and taking, you know, where you see upside, where you see value, where you see, uh, you know, talent down the road. And I think now the 76ers are kind of on the other side, uh, in the other end of the spectrum where it's also a little bit easier because they're, they're later in the draft, um, there's less, um, you know, there's less uh there's less stakes, you know, on a on a number twenty four pick than there is on a number one pick. And um because they sort of have this structure of the team in place, you know, they're working on, on re signing Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris and, and J. J. Redick. But they know the core of that team is Embiid and Ben Simmons. They know it's gonna be sort of locked in for at least the next couple of years and so you know, they can the, – the, that context piece is somewhat settled. You know, there's not as many question marks there. And so they can really look for kind of skill-focused guys who who fit in around that. And I, I think Matisse Teibel, the guy that they, that they took, is really interesting. Um, maybe one of the best wing defenders uh, in the draft and a guy who um, uh, creates defensive impact plays. Like his you, – you have uh, DeAndre Hunter, who was taken at the top of the draft, is another really highly regarded defensive prospect – uh, but he did not create defensive impact plays. His, his defensive value more was in, um, you know, preventing shots, uh, you know, keeping the offense from running the kinds of things that they want to do. Whereas Tybul was really disruptive. Lots of steals, lots of blocks, the kind mm-hmm. of things that, um, you know, fuel, uh, defense into offense transition and fast breaks and things like that. Um, the, the one thing that's concerning, you know, thinking about the Seventy Sixers is Tybalt's really a, a, an offensive zero right now. Um, not a guy who has has demonstrated a lot of uh, a lot of skill at that end of the floor. And when you talk about him and Embiid and Simmons that, uh, on the floor together, potentially have three non-shooters, which is kind of troubling. But you know, he's a guy who you could see playing in in, the, in a playoff series with the Raptors this year, and um, you know, probably not starting, probably not playing huge minutes, but a, definitely a situational guy who could make an impact in, in in the right role.
1: So one of the things that I'm very intrigued about basketball is the shift towards uh, younger players. These one and duns they're eighteen, they're nineteen 19 years old, mm-hmm. and what that changes is it makes it look a little bit more like you know the old you know baseball where they draft the 17 18 year olds and then development is a huge part of the game just as a just as a, a side information the the number 1 draft pick in baseball was a college player who was basically ignored the first time around when he was in high school he was the 40 who's in the 40th round 40th round so a lot happens between ages 18 and ages of 22 how does the new basketball world deal with the 19 year old who is really on an age trajectory which is rather has a really steep derivative
2: and, and, and obviously you just kind of have less observed information yeah. on these
1: individuals we're going to see development from basketball or are we what, what's going to change
2: yeah, I
3: mean well so there's so there's sort of two things. So one thing as I would say is the prep uh the prep circuit has grown so much that in terms of visual scouting, uh seeing a player play on tape, especially against high-end competition, you know, often it's, it's sort of a disorganized, um, you know, a disorganized setting, you know, watching somebody play an AAU game, you know, is not, maybe not as, as sort of structured as a, as a, you know, a D1 college game, but you're seeing them play against, you know, other sort of top prospects. And so, um, I think we are I think teams are still getting a lot of scouting and and visual observations of these prospects, you know, even though they're coming in so young. I think they they um you know, they're getting that piece we maybe don't have a lot of reliable analytics on it, um but at least there is some information. It's not like they're taking guys blind, which I think maybe was more the case Um, you know, back in like the Kwame Brown era where we're seeing high school players, you know, come in and, and maybe be a little bit more of an unknown. And then, you know, from an analytics perspective, you have this, this issue of age sort of, um, you know, all things being equal, you'd rather take a 19 year old prospect over a 21 year old prospect because you know that they, you know, they have more opportunity to grow before they hit that theoretical athletic ceiling. Um, and I think you're seeing the smart teams have invested more and more in their, uh, you know, their development systems, both with the parent club and with, you know, the growing G League system and, you know, the advent of two-way contracts where they can have players sort of intentionally, you know, really sliding back and forth between NBA teams and G-League teams. And, um, I think there's a lot more communication about, um, you know, coaching staff at G-League uh, teams, making sure that they're running the kinds of things that the parent clubs is working with. And so I think you're, you're seeing teams being willing to, um, to, to look at those younger guys not just as potential stars, but also you know, as a 19-year-old kid who could grow into a role player um, and, and, and feeling confident in their ability to develop some of those skill things you know, in the specific way that their team might need.
2: You, uh, you mentioned uh, that there's some teams that are really smart about this. Can you give a couple examples of teams? I know I, I was reading somewhere that Golden State certainly has a pretty heavy uh, investment in G League.
3: Yeah, and there was an interesting case in the draft this year where they had um I won't even try and pronounce his name, uh, but they had a, a a a small forward, uh European who was too young to play in the NBA. I think he was uh, 18 when he began the G League season, so he wasn't draft eligible yet, but he could play in the G League. Um, and he played for their G League team and was so impressive, uh you know, in in the limited run he got that they uh The reporting I've heard is that they sort of essentially shut him down. They didn't want to play him too much because they didn't own his draft rights yet.
2: And they didn't want the other teams to necessarily notice.
3: Yeah, they didn't yeah. want anybody to notice how good this kid was and people were onto it and I can't even remember who it was but somebody in the draft I think he was taken like in the mid 30s sort of beginning of the second round but somebody else realized, recognized and they made the Warriors trade up to get him um, and you know was able to sort of extract an asset. Um, so yeah, I think uh I think the teams that have have done the best job with this were sort of the early adopters on connecting um you know connecting their parent club with a G League team uh you know the first teams that sort of had direct ownership over a G League team where they could direct what was happening at a developmental level and a coaching level and a skill level there so you know not a surprise but teams like the Spurs and the Rockets uh you know were were really early on that and and the Rockets especially sort of used their G League team as a um as a lab kind of to experiment with some style of play things, uh, you know, having them play extreme on on pace and, and three point shooting and stuff like that and trying to figure out some some kind of natural bounds for what was reasonable for the NBA club. Um, and the 76ers have done a good job with this, too. You know, they they use their their G League team in Delaware really well.
1: So terrific. Uh, We are – this is Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to uh, Business Radio, uh, talking statistics and sports with Ian Levy. We're talking about basketball, and we've been discussing – the draft and development league but i'm going to change the topic a little bit we're going to now talk about free agency um i guess a lot i mean part of me really wants you to start by talking about (laughs) the trades that i mean the signings and trades that already happened start with the lakers with you got i mean they went from you know not making the playoffs to now i think maybe they're still the favorites to to win the win everything next year just having you know two two of the best players in 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 the world on the same team what do you think about that
3: I think they're, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of a natural pessimist sometimes about these, these, um, you know, star driven teams where they're kind of, uh, just, you know, grabbing the best player and, and stitching it together. But I think the Lakers are going to be really disappointing next year. I think, um, I mean, obviously they have this challenge where, uh, you know, depending on on the reporting you you buy, they maybe didn't do their due diligence on the the timing of the deal and uh, when the Pelicans were going to agree to it, and that um, cost them some cap space, just a sliver of cap space, but it's enough that right now they can't offer uh, another max uh, contract. Um, and so there's some, some potentially some very creative ways that they could try and, and free that money up. But there's a chance that they, um, you know, uh, just simply don't have the room to offer uh, a contract for another one of those top tier guys. And then even if they do, you know, land. Wait, one do, of they those tier- do they need another?
1: Do they need another top tier guys?
3: With well, I think much more pressing is they need depth. I mean, their right. their roster right now is essentially, you know, Anthony Davis and LeBron and Kyle Kuzma, and then you know a bunch of first and second year guys. And I, so I think that's much more concerning is, is how do they fill out the roster? Um, I mean, even in, in a playoff series where things are going to tighten up and, you know, where, you know, in, a, in an ideal world, they have LeBron and, and Davis on the floor for 40 minutes. They still need three other guys to play with them and they still need a bench, you know, that goes two or three guys deep with, with useful skill players. And, and I think we saw this year how much, um, being, uh, you know, not very thoughtful in roster construction, how much that hurt them this year. You know, they signed a bunch of of sort of bargain veterans, but none of them were a very good fit with the roster they had. And, you know, Michael Beasley and Rajon Rondo and Lance Stevenson, they all sort of ended up being kind of disastrous. And so, yeah, I, I'm concerned about how they are able to fill out the rest of this roster. Who's going to want to go there? Are they going to be able to get the kind of, sh- you know, shooting and wing defenders they need? And then, you know, I have some concerns about health, you know, Anthony Davis is a guy who has missed a lot of games. And, you know, if we're talking about a, a team with a, you know, a razor thin margin for error, if, if Davis goes down for 15 games in the middle of the season, or, you know, LeBron gets nicked up like they could be in real trouble.
1: Wow, so you're short the Lakers. Actually, that's probably a decent bet, but it's hard to bet it. Bet it, of course, right now if you're a sports better. So let's go through the the potential free agent you know, class, the biggies. Um, tell me what analytics have to say about it, and, and where they're you know how which team they might fit well with. So let's start with Kyrie.
3: I mean, he's an interesting player. I think he's still um, you you value him as a, a, a volume scorer, a guy who can create offense in, in difficult situations. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, from an analytics perspective, questions about his, his defensive value and how much, uh, you know, his, his negative defense kind of washes out his offense. Uh, and I think the bigger concern with him is, is less the, um, the, the analytics side, what he can do on the court, but what his presence brings to a locker room. I and mean, we watched him, uh, sort of with an ugly exit from Cleveland and in two years in Boston, um, you know, Kind of uh, erode what looks to be a sort of a very positive chemistry situation, and mm. you know I I think I lay a lot of uh, a lot of what happened with Boston this year at his feet, both um, you know him sort of antagonizing other players and and I don't know. So it, yeah, if I if I was Brooklyn, I'd be I'd be pretty nervous about signing him, especially if it's if they're just getting Kyrie and they're not bringing in somebody like Durant with him.
1: It's interesting how you you point as an analyst that you point to the one thing that's the, the most difficult to actually evaluate. <laughs> His chemistry. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. Uh, there's a couple more players. So let's start with Durant. You mentioned Durant. Where's what's going to happen with Durant? I know on our show, we have an over under segment. And I'm definitely uh, I, I forecasted Durant not playing another game with the Warriors. Um, Adam, that seems to be up and down. What do you think? What's going to happen to him?
3: It's really hard to tell. I, I, I don't feel like I have a good handle on it. It certainly seemed like all season everything was pointing towards the Knicks. A lot of sort of quiet rumblings behind the scenes were, you know, everybody assumed he was going to New York. Um, you know, the, the offices for his production company moved to moved to Manhattan uh, before this season. So it certainly seemed like that was where it was heading. I don't know. I mean, the injury makes things so complicated. You have the issue of, you know, both of um, – what he's, uh, you know, willing to take on while he's rehabbing, uh, what teams are willing to pay him, uh, going into next year, considering he, you know, probably won't play for the bulk of next season as he, as he rehabs that injury, uh, and then, you know, the question of what he, what he can be when he comes back. So maybe that scares off a couple teams. Maybe it, it drives down the cost. Maybe there's a, a team that wants to try and sort of play hardball with him. And then the other issue is, you know, how that affects other free agents. You know, we have this idea of him going to New York or going to Brooklyn and and teaming up with Kyrie Irving or Jimmy Butler or something like that. And, you know, maybe some other top tier free agents don't want to, you know, uh, hitch up to his wagon anymore, not knowing exactly what he's going to be. So my guess is that he still probably ends up in new york just seemed like there was so much momentum behind that this season um but it you know it also wouldn't surprise me if if some of this has sort of been overblown and um you know maybe he ends up back with the warriors maybe he uh, goes somewhere else and does you know a, a one plus one uh you know a one-year deal and then a player option like he's been doing in golden state and rolls it over for next year to try and prove he's, he's healthy before he gets that last big deal.
2: There's been a lot of kind of you know reports of, of, of kind of sort of sign and trade type possibilities. I think both for Durant and I think uh, maybe Jimmy Butler was another one that I saw uh, in, in that category. What do you think of those kind of options in general? Do you think that they're particularly you know feasible or is it just kind of wish casting on the part of fans don't want to lose their players?
3: I think some of it's kind of is is kind of a uh, silly optimism by fans. I mean, I, I can see it from a uh, a player perspective. You know, encouraging your team to uh, your current team to work out a sign and trade if you want to leave, you get the added benefit of. Um, you know, maybe saving your reputation a little bit, you know, yeah, you, you know, you're going to leave, but you don't want to totally screw your team over. And so you make sure they get something in return. Um, and then also, you know, and there's in that extra the year, too,
2: that's kind of that that has,
3: yeah, there's, right. there's a financial incentive to do that too. you know, a higher salary and, a, and an extra year. Um, but then you're also cleaning out the team that you're going to, <laughs> right, you know, they're going to have to right. get True. Assets True back enough. out to, to make that work. And, you know, we saw that you know, maybe was, was a, a catastrophic, uh, a thing for Carmelo Anthony pushing that deal to the Knicks and then having to clear out the roster to get him there and, and never quite recovering. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. I think it's really complicated. And I think, um, you know, in a lot of cases, it might just be cleaner for both the team and the, and the player to just, you know, just
1: not not explore that option very deeply. All right. Well, there's uh, lots of other things to talk about. I, I do want to ask about Jimmy Butler, about Kemba Walker. These is a name that, as a non you know on top of things basketball player, a basketball follower, that's not a name that pops to my head um, automatically. But everybody talks about him as a as a top free agent. So talk about those two. Uh,
3: yeah, I think Kemba Walker is really interesting. He's a guy who uh, I you know we're getting uh, reports that a lot of teams are really interested we're hearing about now uh, Boston and Dallas being really interested in him um and he, you know he seems like a guy that that some of these good teams are are interested in adding uh, as opposed to you know maybe a team like the Knicks uh, who's who's sort of starting <laughs> a bad the team you mean and, and- <laughs> Yeah. Bad team. Sounds yep. a nice yeah, a nicer way of saying it. But I, I think Kemba's really interesting because he has been so successful in Charlotte, but he has also played in this primary ball handler role where he's had an enormous usage. He's been really, really efficient in that role. Um, so obviously you worry about how he's going to age in that role, you know we saw uh Isaiah Thomas fall off a cliff uh, really quickly, you know injuries kind of chipped away at it and all of a sudden, you know his his uh efficient scoring ability seemed to evaporate into thin air. And then the other piece with with Kemba is he's not really had to play uh, in a situation where he's sharing the ball with other effective ball handlers. And, you know, so if he ends up, let's say, on a team like Boston, um, you know, how much value does he have as a, in an off-ball role? Uh, or, you know, with the Mavericks playing next to Luka Doncic, you know, on paper, it's like, well, he's a great shooter. You know, he could still work as a, as a secondary creator and all these other things. But, um, you know, if, if the, if the thing that makes him so special is high usage, high efficiency, um, you know, could you? Could if you if that's what makes him special, and you're not going to ask him to do that thing? Then what's it? Yeah. Get, could you get somebody to do the secondary role for less money? You know, if you're going to ask Kemba Walker to be, you know, CJ McCollum or something like that, could you just get that role filled? You know, for for less money. So,
1: how about Jimmy Butler? How important is he to the Seventy Sixers' continued success?
3: I think he's he's really interesting to them. I think. Um, I think he's important in in part because of um, sort of attitude and intensity and aggressiveness and, and defensive ability, um, all of those sorts of things. I think they they really showed themselves uh, to be important uh, during that playoff run. But um, you know his his shaky shooting is is an issue, especially if they're going to lose JJ Redick. Um, I mean they were often playing lineups with only one sort of real reliable three point threat you know it it, indeed happily takes three pointers butler will take three pointers but i think you know most uh most defenses would be happy to let them take those shots Mm -hmm. so uh, i think the question for the 76ers is how do they um how do they keep as much shooting as they can uh, on the floor so yeah i think Butler's the right play for them but it's the, the it's It's going to make the construction of the rest of the roster really, really important, too.
1: Okay, so one of the things that we as statisticians keep track of is the numbers of jobs and statistically-minded analysts that are going to different teams in different sports, and basketball has uh in the last couple of years I think has been leading the charge um uh, baseball of course is always grabbing as many as they can and now now that there's a <laughs> rapid growth there, and football is finally finally yeah. starting to get on this bandwagon but let me ask you a little bit about basketball i mean I know we know the sixers has a- gi- have a gigantic team of analysts, some of them get ridden up in the newspaper um Let me ask you what do they do <laughs> I mean, well, and, I- <laughs> and, and, and
2: again yeah. specifically I think. You know, I, I mean, we can kind of, it's easy to track, like, how many teams are hiring analysts. It's hard to track which teams are actually listening to them. You know, I, I think that's the kind of that communication aspect, like, of, of whether yeah. or not those analysts actually have a voice within the organization. So I don't know if you have any kind of general or so, specific yeah, so, comments so, so on so that. talk
1: about what, what are the things they're doing and who's actually listening. I and mean, we know that they made a big change. I mean, the whole three-point and spacing was created by analytics. But, yeah. but now take us to the next generation.
3: Well, I think it really 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 depends on the team. Um I think you have um I think you have some teams where uh those, you know, uh those those analysts are mostly doing uh draft modeling and um, you know, free agency preparation. Okay. You have some places where those analysts are mostly doing um essentially like scouting report prep, you know, similar to the kinds of stuff that video people used to do um, or strictly video people used to do where they're, they're adding, you know, uh you know, sh- short, short uh, scouting reports for players, you know, Hey, this guy you're playing the next game is, is, you know, driving left two thirds of the time, you know, make sure you, you know, push him right or whatever it is. Um, so there's people who are doing things like that. I think there's only a handful of teams that are really doing kind of, big picture um, you know, work with massive data sets, really trying to solve bigger kinds of conceptual problems that, that change, you know, how they're, how they're approaching things top to bottom. Um, I, you know, and you still have teams where, you know, the, the analytics staff is, is maybe mostly on a consultant basis or, or, um, you know, things of that nature. So it really differs from team to team. I think, uh, I think you can sort of from the outside the indicator that people are working on sort of big picture conceptual stuff um, is when you see people hiring when you see people hiring for tech-specific jobs, when you pe- see people hiring coders, developers, front-end developers, that kind of thing, that tells you that uh, people might be working with large-scale data sets. They might be getting the raw tracking data from, from second spectrum as opposed to you know, just sort of the summary reports that are made available to every team. Mm-hmm. And then they're working on developing their own algorithms to sort of pull out what they want from that, um, you know, from that raw data.
1: Well, we know the Sixers are definitely doing that. What other teams are leading the charge in that score? Uh
3: I think uh I think the Spurs, uh you can always sort of talk about being at the forefront there. Mm-hmm. I think the Rockets uh, are another team. Um my my good friend Seth Partnow started with me at, at Nylon Calculus is now the director of analytics for the Bucks and so uh, I know they're doing some really interesting creative things. Um the Timberwolves too. We have another um Another uh, former analyst from uh, from Nylon Calculus, uh, Nick Russo works in their analytics department. Mm-hmm. I know they're doing some creative things, um, and I would also point to the Kings. Uh, I don't know a ton about the insides of their organization, but uh, the guy who runs their analytics department is uh, Luke Bourne, who uh, wrote a, a couple of the sort of really ground-breaking. Uh, spatial analysis papers at the Sloan Conference, you know, over the past couple.
1: Oh of yeah, years. we know Luke uh, Luke's
2: work very well. He's sort yeah, of, you know, he's yeah. he's you know also like very very well respected as an academic statistician as well. Is it? I think he's Simon at UBC, Fraser University. Simon Fraser as well. In yeah. fact,
1: yes. Yeah, so so he actually Luke is what, one of the pioneers of looking at the spatial temporal data as uh, while he was at Harvard. I think Harvard was he was able to either acquire or some use a relationship with the uh, NBA with and, Kirk Goldsbury up there, and yeah. the, this is what they were actually the first group to really have the um this this uh tracking data and this before it was it's not public at all but this data they got and they were able to uh, turn that into some early papers and 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 a great uh prospects for Luke Bourne, but he's also been in soccer I mean he's sort of taken this sort of spatial temporal analysis uh into a bunch of different directions and it's starting to come to to football we're just starting to see that so maybe eventually we'll see some <laughs> analytics actually break into into the world of football so the last my last question for you um just when you're watching a basketball game, I know how I watch it, which is pretty obtusely. <laughs> um, but when you're an expert, analytics expert, uh, expert in basketball, watching, what what other things? What are, what are you paying attention to that I might not be?
3: I honestly, I don't think analytics plays a ton uh into how I watch the game. I mean <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I will often, you know, sort of be watching the game and will, you know, check the box score after ten or fifteen minutes and be like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that guy had fifteen points. You know, I didn't notice right. that at all. Um, you know, little things like that. So I try and pay attention to um things that uh sort of the smart X's and O's people have uh, you know, have have talked to me about. Things like trying to watch not just watch the ball trying to watch the action off the ball um it it also depends whether i'm just watching a game to watch a game or whether i'm watching a game for some sort of media work you know if i'm writing an article about a specific player I, i might be watching a game and specifically watching that player regardless of whether they have the ball or who they're defending or whatever um you know i might be looking for something specific how do they you know, separate from screens and the pick and roll and things like that. So sometimes I'm looking for for some sort of specific nuance that might not really have anything to do with the outcome of the game. It might you know might be for right. for some sort of research or article I'm working on.
1: Well, it's been terrific having you on the show this morning, Ian, um, and uh, we are really grateful for you joining us this morning. So thank you very much to wrap up our show, talk a little bit of baseball, Shane, right? Let's yeah. talk about the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Twins, the Astros. I want to talk about the Nationals, Talk too. about the Nationals, and then we'll do our final over-under segment. Once again, going at it. Unfortunately. Um, this is a, you know, a classic Yankees-Red Sox with, of course, the Rays sitting there in the mix, yeah. as we've all talked about and continue to talk about. this. Is is a great small market team with great analytics that has really managed to develop and make the most of their budget.
2: Um, yeah, I, it's interesting. We we had a discussion with Rick Peterson earlier in the uh, show uh, where he kind of made this analogy between the the Twins and the Rays. In part, I think because specific personnel have maybe moved between those two organizations. Um, but it, it, it's interesting that like you know the Rays, I always sort of see like you know. The, they are obviously analytics heavy, but they seem to always kind of their focus is on pitching. Yep. You know, they, they have a, they, the number of amazing pitchers that have come out of that organization that are still, whether they're with the Rays or not, have, are across baseball. It's really impressive. But then you look at the Twins, who are also I guess more analytically forward as well, and it's definitely not through pitching this year. I mean, this year they've actually been doing pretty well pitching-wise, but that's not, you know, they're just hitting it's a not, billion it's, home it, runs. They're
1: just, uh, it's almost remarkable. You cannot believe it. Um, listen, Tampa Bay is, uh, is, has got great stuff. We've actually had on our show their assistant GM, Chaim Bloom, has been on our yeah. show. He's, I know, probably on will be on the you know yeah. the, the free agent market for GM-ship eventually. Yeah. Um, and,
2: and, and again, I think this is where, you know, I mean, you, you are sort of seeing that with analytic, you know, being more analytically forward than the rest of the league can compensate a lot for kind of salary disadvantage, you know, kind of payroll disadvantage. And you see with the athletic, and you see with the Rays. I almost worry, I wonder what your opinion on this is. Like, as we kind of move towards the future, you would kind of think that, you know, I mean, obviously it's been slow, but other teams will catch up analytically. And so in a future where analytics are a little bit more uniformly dispersed, across the whole league, then is it just going to be payroll? Like, assuming baseball remains without a salary cap, is, is are we going to well, go to Well, there is a it? luxury
1: tax in baseball. Well, sure. There's no but, cap, but there's... Sure,
2: but uh, um, will, will we move towards an era where once the analytics is kind of more uniformly across the league, you know, will all of a sudden it be you know, almost the less interesting part where it's just payroll that back, dominates. Back again. Or, just, or is it, or analytics, is there never going to be that uniform, uh, you know, will we'll, we'll we never get to that state where, will there always be some analytics edge that could re- be pushed by small market teams? Right.
1: So know. actually that leads us into I think an, a, a nice final segment before we do our, our actual final yeah. segment which is what are the, the, the contours, the front, the front edges of analytics in yeah. each sport and we, we, we kind of went through that a little bit with basketball. Like what are they going to be doing yeah. with analytics now that they've already discovered Three points. So that's so actually earlier in the show, we talked about the biggest um, breakthroughs in football. And I think uh, we're we're coalescing around the idea that it's passing, passing yeah. and more passing and the most efficient way to use that passing. I think that's where the analytics yeah. is going to be headed. But but on the other side, I always thought it was. That after that Romer paper that came out, what, 10, 15 years ago, talking about how fourth downs, you should go for it much more on fourth downs and the widespread availability of the correct decision. You know, the New York Times has a bot. They keep track of it every week. And and I would have thought that that with the assimilation of all that information, that the teams would be going it on fourth down. Far more than they should. So I'm going to ask you a, a question, which I know the answer to, and I want to hear your guess. What is the appro- approximately the percentage of the times that teams in the NFL go for it on fourth down when they're supposed to?
2: When 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 the analytics when the analytics should. say go for it, thirty um, yeah, percent. That's about
1: right. Thirty percent, not okay. forty. It's okay. it's 30. in the high twenties, thirty yeah. percent. All right. Which is I thought. <laughs> It's pretty horrible. Well, I mean, again, it,
2: it just you know the people that are making these decisions, as we sort of like noted, I feel like we noted almost every show are you know NFL coaches are incredibly risk averse, right. and I mean there is kind of this like psychological. It's not analytical; it's psychological kind of effect that if if you go for it on fourth down and you don't get it, everybody looks at you, right. Um, for, you know, where, where is this like, even if you should have gone for it, I mean, it, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that it, we're really just kind of looking at risk aversion on, on behalf of the, co- on, right, on the so, part of the coaches. So
1: I will then follow up with which team has led the league in correct decisions in the last, you know, last few years, which team has dominated that score? I'm going to guess the
2: Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles.
1: Man, I should have. I should give him a prize. We got a, We got a sound here well, for, I mean, for him, like a, a uh, marvelous, like two in a row. This a, is fantastic. It's a Pyrrhic victory because
2: the reason I know that, thank bingo, you, there we thank go. You. The reason I know that is I watched that damn Super Bowl where the Eagles went for it against the Patriots. Every time, every 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 time they had an opportunity to take a chance,
1: they took a chance. They did, and so and they and they won. So the the Eagles are actually interesting. They've been up around sixty percent match. For the last three years in a row, and they they are head and shoulders above the rest of yeah. the league. What so? And I actually looked at New England. I thought New England, New England, actually they're mainstream. I mean, they're just sitting there, right, like almost every other team with almost no trend. Now, obviously, it depends on personnel, and there's all kinds of yeah. risk making and you know, and they. But they I, I and matter. I do
2: sort of and I you know we talked about it a little bit. With Ian in the previous segment, in the context of basketball, but I think it's the same point in football. Is you know you can we we can look at which teams hire analysts, and basically all teams hire some sort of analysts now. Right. But it really the difference makers how much those analysts actually have a voice within the organization, that's right. and that's much harder to kind of see from the outside but you can kind of look at these sort of things and say like maybe you know and i mean we we do happen to know some very smart people that work for the philadelphia eagles specifically and i think those people not only are very smart but they are given a greater voice within the organization compared to some others. And clearly, you can kind of see in an
1: outcome that that's a good thing. All right. So I'm going to see if you can go three for three here. Oh, my goodness. All right. So there are a couple of teams that have seen an enormous increase from percentages hovering around the 10% mark to now up around the 50%, 60% mark. Let's see if you can name at least a couple of those.
2: Oh, oh. Like so teams that have really dramatically changed mm-hmm. in, in, in their sort of – Fourth down. Fourth down, fourth fourth Okay, uh, Chicago are the Bears one of them? I'm actually just thinking of co- teams <laughs> with like coaching changes. So
1: actually, they're they're <laughs> not. Like that. Okay. So maybe we should. Oh, wait, that's, that's not sad. one of the teams that 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 is doing. What about so, the LA Rams? So the, the thing about the LA Rams is the Rams are the Rams don't have. I mean, there's some movement, right? So so yeah, the LA Rams are actually not too high. They're not great. Yeah. Um, and so but I would have thought you would have gone for the teams that 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 really, really have doubled down on analytics. So the, the Cleveland, they yeah. really oh, are that's seeing true. No. German, They were horrible, and now yeah. they're, they're up in the, up yeah. near the top of the league. And I don't know whether uh, it was their mathematician offensive lineman, but the Ravens okay. are, are also went from horrible to nearly the top. There are a bunch of other teams that, that are... That the are, Ravens
2: are an interesting case because they really haven't changed much as right. far as like coaching or anything like that. Because you know, I sort of see that this usually does kind of come from the coach down, I would assume. You but, would. Yeah.
1: You would think. But it's also, I think, yeah. the impact. Of the analytics mm-hmm. group on the uh, on the on the rest of the organization interestingly so, and I don't want to make too much of this because there is some obviously there's opportunities and not every opportunity is the same if you're deep in a game if you're if you're getting crushed for example you're gonna go for it more often but the Giants were always terrible and last year they they just jumped up quite a bit I don't yeah. know I don't want to make too much of it but this is a, this is a little game we can play to see, yeah. see who in a measurable way how analytics are actually taking place on the field so that's football um, what else is sports so so so, so let's think well, about. Well,
2: we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, like kind of like the role that analysts can play for these in these different sports, and of course, the kind of obvious one of the obvious roles that analysts can play is kind of forward projection of contracts in, 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 right. in baseball. And I just wanted to kind of talk about because I, I remember several years ago and it was several years ago, when Max Scherzer was signed by the Nationals. Oh, man, I remember we that. We slammed that deal we did. we did. like you would not believe. We're like, there's no way he's going to be worth $30 million a year for the next seven years. And it was a $30 million. Right. It was a $210 million contract for seven years. In the ensuing four years, what is, Max Scherzer has—he's already outpaced so, his value. Oh my goodness! It's been such a good and deal. He's dominating for them. again, and he's dominating again. I mean, we're, he's basically—I mean, I think he's—I mean, he probably needs a couple more years, but I, I see him as a Hall of Fame pitcher. Oh, um, potentially,
1: potentially even potentially, topper, topper. Secondaire. Yeah, no, that's
2: right. <laughs> Um, so that that's I, I just kind of wanted to point that out as kind of like an interesting yeah. example. I mean, I mean, I still think we're probably our, our process was correct in our you know in evaluating that is not necessarily a good deal, but in the, that this particular outcome, he's actually you know he's been worth
1: it. So here's the question, of course, yeah, about the contract they got rid of, Bryce Harper. Yeah. No, that's right. No, yeah, and I mean... Has not performed so far for the Phillies. His on-base percentage is 360, he's hitting 250, he's got 10, 12 home runs, nothing remarkable.
2: No, and and I mean, I think that's the thing, is I think we are generally correct that these kind of gigantic contracts for free agents in baseball um, are typically not going to be a good deal for the team or you know the the high proportion are not going to be a good deal for the team they occasionally will be it just you know but i I, I think there's going to be more there's more harper's or i guess uh stanton looks like it's not going to not great well you know he's he's talked about
1: another injury but of course we can't you know we can't forget the biggest trade biggest contract ever was to mike trout yeah, $400 million, uh, which is looking like a steal. Yeah. No, I mean, Mike Trout is the most... <laughs> three twenty four 24 homers. He's got over five war at this point in the season. Yeah, I mean, I,
2: I do. It's it's Mike Trout. What Mike Trout is doing, just his his greatness and the consistency of his greatness is something I don't think I've ever really seen before. I mean, I guess, you know, Barry Bonds would be the closest analogy yeah. in my lifetime that I've right. watched. Um and it, yeah, I mean, I I just I kind of feel like it, it's 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 a little bit of a bummer that the Angels have not, you know, competed, been more yeah. more competitive or he doesn't, or, he doesn't
1: play on the national stage because yeah, of
2: it. that's exactly right. I would love to see Mike Trout in the playoffs. Actually, I thought there was an interesting article. It might have been on Five Thirty Eight as most interesting articles are um, about how consistently great Mike Trout is and how consistently five hundred the Angels are.
1: It's 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 really tragic in some sense. I think the probably the best comparison. Historically, to Mike Trout is is Mickey Mantle, mm-hmm. and Mickey Mantle was was the fastest runner and the strongest uh, hitter, and he did that for uh, for a majority of his career. He did suffer from injury, yeah. but he was a center fielder, a great defensive player, and a great home run hitter and a great average and walker. He did everything, yeah. but he did it in New York in those years where the Yankees were on the on the World Series stage every year, and he became the icon of baseball. Mike Trout, to sadly, is still somewhat obscure. Yeah, be not not to anyone who follows or pays attention to baseball but to the world at large because he's on a team that just doesn't play on the national stage in a regular way and so we they paid him you know 400 million dollars over 10 years or what i think that was the contract but that's actually a steal just finally one last segment we talked about this during our break if the if basketball the nba did not have a salary cap in other words you could pay whatever you wanted how much would a player like lebron get (laughs) Oh, so he gets around 40 million. I think that's about what it is. That's about what the cap is approximately Like 120 right now. million a year but or something, something s- silly I mean, <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> it, would, it, it would have to be something in that yeah. neighborhood. Yeah, because, it would be. And it would be different from baseball because in in basketball a single player can have an outsized impact yeah, on the actual Yeah, exactly right. that's that, exactly right. That's exactly right. No, so, I mean,
2: that, it's kind of the ideal scenario here for kind of – it's it's a team sport, but it's a team sport where one player can right. have the biggest impact. And that does
1: not happen in baseball, even the greatness of my yeah. track. I, I mean, the, the
2: only analogy I think would be, nec- uh, you know, in football with quarterbacks. Quarterback. So that, so, yeah. so that would be something where, again, if there was no cap in football – what proportion of the salary would be going towards? I mean, it's much bigger teams in general, but like, what proportion of the salary would be going towards quarterbacks in football?
1: Well, that would be a long conversation yeah. that we could have perhaps next week. Let's finish our two-hour show with our final segment. It's Warden Moneyballs Over Under.
2: All right. Okay. okay here so we go.
1: Yeah. We, uh, well, it's our tradition that the the, the, the uh, guy not in the driver's seat yeah. drives the over under. So. So yeah, and we've got
2: a couple interesting ones. Uh, Let's—I uh, mean, the, the two big things we're talking about this whole show are uh, you know NBA free agency as, uh, as well as uh, MLB. So let's start off with some NBA. Um, Thirty-six point five wins for the New Orleans Pelicans. They just drafted, of course, Zion Williamson. Zion. And we discussed that at length. They won thirty-three games last year.
1: Or what's, what do you what's, think? What's five hundred in basketball? Forty-one is that about right? Yep. So we're still predicting them to be losing teams. Now, don't they have a whole trove of draft picks? Didn't they just trade? They did have didn't...
2: a whole. Tra- yeah. So they. So they. They. they they're pra- basically added Zion Williamson plus
1: draft picks and subtract Anthony Davis. Right. So one would have to argue that Zion Williamson isn't Anthony Davis, at least not yet. Right. So I'm going to go under the 36.5. Right. I don't know whether it's a good call. I'm kind of. Re- yeah they yeah there is a, our producer Maddie Dash just reminded me that they did pick up the the yeah, Lakers players course, of course. but how good were they um not that we know that much so listen You're going I'm going under I'm going under I'm, I'm gonna going to take under.
2: the over I'm going to take the over I mean I don't know anything more about the necessarily uh I mean you the the relative strength of those players coming in versus the players going out but I'm I'm just going to go on regression to the mean you know so uh they were quite bad last year by record, and I think they'll just be slightly oh, damn, based on that. Damn, damn, damn! By I think i got mean, bro. This is
1: like my my thing. It's like the way I teach I regression know, analysis. I know. None of this it's least ironic. squares it's crap. Ironic. I do a regression, but you're locked I...
2: into the under on that one. <laughs>
1: yes, okay. I am. I get to go second. On well, the next you get one, a second not.
2: chance though. Here, I do. All right, so Fifty-four point five wins for the L.A. Lakers. They had thirty-seven wins last year. So oh. this is that's not even a regression to the mean. That's a regression way past the mean.
1: Um, But they did trade for Anthony Davis. I know, and he has a tendency to get hurt, and LeBron is getting old, and they Mm -hmm. have no other players of note to round out the team. They are the Vegas favorites, but it might be an opportunity for me to actually operationalize Ian Levy suggested that yeah. you should go. Did you should short the Lakers? So I'm going to short the Lakers okay. on our little over under, which counts for zippo nada except bragging rights. So I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna short the Lakers, under.
2: <sighs> yeah, and I'm mean, I'm tempted to do so. I mean, Ian made uh, very compelling points. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to take the over though. Because I I I have learned oh! through vast experience I don't I don't short okay, anything okay, I don't, I don't right. short anything I don't short anything involving LeBron James I just <laughs> you, don't you just do, do that, that anymore. Yep. Um, plus, you know, and this is probably a second order effect, but whatever, you know, I feel like a lot of the talent, you know, that you know, they were in a very very tough conference, and a lot of that talent is probably moving back east, you know, mm-hmm. in free agencies. So I see several of the kind of teams that they will play often a weakening. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take the over on that. All
1: right, you know it's interesting how we all have our little go-to mechanisms. Yeah. I'm always I'm, I'm the guy who always falls back on base my go-to rates. mechanisms
2: are. I mean, we haven't really done our full kind of over-under evaluation yet, but we we when we do everybody will see that my mechanisms are inferior to yours <laughs> I and, know about and, that. and to everybody else on the team all
1: right well it, we, we got a <laughs> okay ah, yeah, there it is sad but true it's sad but true. I've, <laughs> I've come to terms with it it's okay. all, right. all right all right
2: so a, a couple baseball ones um the yankees you mentioned uh, earlier in the show that they're on this epic home run hitting streak was it 28 oh, games God. for the home run 28 you got it do they make 4.5 more games on that streak. So 4.5 over under on them continuing that streak. Um well, that's interesting. So they've hit, uh, the, uh, they've hit 1.67 home runs per game this year. Just if that information's helpful to you.
1: They've averaged 1.6. point. a fun fact. Anyway. That is a very fun fact because if you do take that as the mean of the poisson, and then oh, you figure man. out the probability really that of a fact. zero, Here we go. Here we go. Then we have e to the minus one point six seven is the Just probability Just plug it zero. quickly, simulate it out. And then I'm going to go. One no, no, over. no. You're not allowed to use. On, your, no, no. Use you're your not, your not allowed to use a laptop. Yeah, come That's on. That's against the over under no, no, rules. Is that really? Is I don't really? even know. No, I don't yeah, know. Okay. So the problem is, is my laptop isn't even firing up. Oh. So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out here in, in short order. So, I would guess, um, 4.5 4.5 is a little high if it's one, if they're averaging yeah. 1.67. That's before the return of Judge, but, but, uh, after the, the injury to, yeah. to, um, to, uh, Stanton. So I'm not, this is, it's a good call with 3.2 would be the, would be the, the mean. So somewhere between three and four. You're stalling, uh, I'm man. I'm stalling can, it. I'm stalling. You're stalling. stalling. Stop oh, stalling. And, and, and give and, us an over under. And, and they go to London. All right. I'm going to actually go under then on this because I think the yeah. London trip's going to be very yeah. tough on their bodies.
2: Yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna use the London excuse too. It's gonna be really humid there because that's humid. what Britain's like, and it's, it's gonna slow down the ball. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna take the under on that one. And they're as gonna well.
1: be away, and they're playing the Red Sox, yeah. so they're gonna throw out some decent pitching at them. All right, yeah, good, yeah, good. We'll so see. we agree on it. We agree on it. All right, listen, here's the thing: it's very it's very important, I think, that our our colleagues Eric Bradlow and yeah. Cade Massey, who are not joining us today in the studio, though I think though at least Cade, I think, will be back next week, yeah. and and Eric should be following shortly. They should have the opportunity opportunity to maybe uh weigh in on some of these over-unders these are difficult ones i think this is uh this is a, these are tough are you saying
2: our yeah our strength of schedule kind of yeah, on the over-unders yeah is, is, that's is, right is, is hard we, no and that that really is what's been we, holding me back this whole time is we, we, i specifically we, get the hardest over-unders
1: notice by the way my stalling has brought us to the very end of our show <laughs> leaving it impossible for you to give me another one i was looking at the at the list that matt put out and they are brutal so this has been the conclusion of our uh episode our of uh Wharton Moneyball, thank you very much to our producer, Matt Datz, to our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, uh, to Zach Drapkin, assistant producer, and to all of us and all our listeners. Enjoy your sports. We'll talk to you next week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.